Section 5 of the Turkish Embassy Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Edwards, Wynwood, Pennsylvania. The Turkish Embassy Letters by Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Letter 11. Constantinople, May 29th, O.S. 1717. I have had the advantage of very fine weather all my journey, and as the summer is now in its beauty, I enjoyed the pleasure of fine prospects, and the meadows being full of all sorts of garden flowers and sweet herbs, my Berlin perfumed the air as it pressed them. The Grand Seigneur furnished us with thirty covered wagons for our baggage, and five coaches of the country for our women. We found the road full of the great Spai and their equipage coming out of Asia to the war. They always traveled with tents, but I chose to lie in houses all the way. I will not trouble you with the names of the villages we passed, in which there was nothing remarkable. But at Chorlu there was a cognac, or little seraglio, built for the use of the Grand Seigneur when he goes this road. I had the curiosity to view all the apartments destined for the ladies of his court. They were in the midst of a thick grove of trees made fresh by fountains, but I was most surprised to see the walls almost covered with little distiches of Turkish verse, wrote with pencils. I made my interpreter explain them to me, and I found several of them very well turned, though I easily believed him that they had lost much of their beauty in the translation. One was literally thus in English. We come into this world, we lodge and we depart. He never goes that's lodged within my heart. The rest of our journey was through fine painted meadows by the side of the sea of Marmora, the ancient Propontis. We lay the next night at Celivria, anciently a noble town. It is now a good seaport and neatly built enough and has a bridge of 32 arches. Here is a famous Greek church. I had given one of my coaches to a Greek lady who desired the conveniency of traveling with me. She designed to pay her devotions, and I was glad of the opportunity of going with her. I founded an ill-built edifice, set out with the same sort of ornaments, but less rich, as the Roman Catholic churches. They showed me a saint's body where I threw a piece of money, and a picture of the Virgin Mary, drawn by the hand of St. Luke, very little to the credit of his painting, but, however, the finest Madonna of Italy is not more famous for her miracles. The Greeks have a monstrous taste in their pictures, which, for more finery, are always drawn upon a gold ground. You may imagine what a good air this has, but they have no notion either of shade or proportion. They have a bishop here who officiated in his purple robe, and sent me a candle almost as big as myself for a present when I was at my lodging. We lay that night at a town called Bujuk Chekmeji, or Great Bridge, and the night following at Kujuk Chekmeji, or Little Bridge, in a very pleasant lodging, formerly a monastery, of Dervices, having before it a large court encompassed with marble cloisters with a good fountain in the middle. The prospect from this place and the gardens round it is the most agreeable I have seen, and shows that monks, of all religions, know how to choose their retirements. Tis now belonging to a hogja, or schoolmaster, who teaches boys here. 
I asked him to show me his own apartment, and was surprised to see him point to a tall cypress tree in the garden, on the top of which was a place for a bed for himself, and a little lower, one for his wife and two children, who slept there every night. I was so much diverted with the fancy I resolved to examine his nest nearer, but, after going up fifty steps, I found I had still fifty to go up, and then I must climb from branch to branch with some hazard of my neck. I thought it therefore the best way to come down again. We arrived the next day at Constantinople, but I can yet tell you very little of it, all my time having been taken up with receiving visits which are at least a very good entertainment to the eyes, the young women being all beauties and their beauty highly improved by the high taste of their dress. Our palace is in Pera, which is no more a suburb of Constantinople than Westminster is a suburb to London. All the ambassadors are lodged very near each other. One part of our house shows us the port, the city, and the seraglio, and the distant hills of Asia, perhaps altogether the most beautiful prospect in the world. A certain French author says, Constantinople is twice as big as Paris. Mr. Wortley is unwilling to own it is bigger than London, though I confess it appears to me to be so, but I don't believe it is so populous. The burying fields about it are certainly much larger than the whole city. It is surprising what a vast deal of land is lost this way in Turkey. Sometimes I have seen burying places of several miles, belonging to very inconsiderable villages, which were formerly great towns, and retain no other mark of their ancient grandeur than this dismal one. On no occasion do they ever remove a stone that serves for a monument. Some of them are costly enough, being a very fine marble. They set up a pillar with a carved turban on the top of it to the memory of a man, and, as the turbans by their different shapes show the quality or profession, tis in a manner putting up the arms of the deceased. Besides, the pillar commonly bears an inscription in gold letters. The ladies have a simple pillar, without other ornament, except those that die unmarried, who have a rose on the top of their monument. The sepulchres of particular families are railed in, and planted round with trees. Those of the sultans and some great men have lamps constantly burning in them. When I spoke of their religion I forgot to mention two peculiarities, one of which I have read of, but it seems so odd to me I could not believe it, yet tis certainly true, that when a man has divorced his wife in the most solemn manner, he can take her again, upon no other terms than permitting another man to pass a night with her, and there are some examples of those who have submitted to this law, rather than not have backed their beloved. The other point of doctrine is very extraordinary. Any woman that dies unmarried is looked upon to die in a state of reprobation. To confirm this belief, they reason that the end of the creation of woman is to increase and multiply, and that she is only properly employed in the works of her calling when she is bringing forth children or taking care of them, which are all the virtues that God expects from her, and indeed their way of life, which shuts them out of all public commerce, does not permit them any other. Our vulgar notion that they don't own women to have any souls is a mistake, "'Tis true they say they are not of so elevated a kind, and therefore must not hope to be admitted into the paradise appointed for the men, 
who are to be entertained by celestial beauties. But there is a place of happiness destined for souls of the inferior order, where all good women are to be in eternal bliss. Many of them are very superstitious and will not remain widows ten days for fear of dying in the reprobate state of an useless creature. But those that like their liberty and are not slaves to their religion content themselves with marrying when they are afraid of dying. This is a piece of theology very different from that which teaches nothing to be more acceptable to God than a vow of perpetual virginity. Which divinity is most rational? I leave to you to determine. I have already made some progress in a collection of Greek medals. Here are several professed antiquaries who are ready to serve anybody that desires them. But you cannot imagine how they stare in my face when I inquire about them, as if nobody was permitted to seek after medals till they were grown a piece of antiquity themselves. I have got some very valuable ones of the Macedonian kings, particularly one of Perseus, so lively I fancy I can see all his ill qualities in his face. I have a porphyry head finely cut of the true Greek sculpture, but who it represents is to be guessed at by the learned when I return. For you are not to suppose these antiquaries, who are all Greeks, know anything. Their trade is only to sell. They have correspondents at Aleppo, Grand Cairo in Arabia, and Palestine, who send them all they can find, and very often great heaps that are only fit to melt into pans and kettles. They get the best price they can for them, without knowing those that are valuable from those that are not. Those that pretend to skill generally find out the image of some saint in the metals of the Greek cities. One of them showing me the figure of a palais, with a victory in her hand on a reverse, assured me it was the virgin holding a crucifix. The same man offered me the head of a Socrates on a sardonyx, and, to enhance the value, gave him the title of St. Augustine. I have bespoken a mummy, which I hope will come safe to my hands, notwithstanding the misfortune that befell a very fine one designed for the king of Sweden. He gave a great price for it, and the Turks took it into their heads that he must have some considerable project depending on it. They fancied it the body of God knows who, and that the state of their empire mystically depended on the conservation of it. Some old prophecies were remembered upon this occasion, and the mummy was committed prisoner to the seven towers, where it has remained under close confinement ever since. I dare not try my interest in so considerable a point as the release of it, but I hope mine will pass without examination. Letter 12. Belgrade Village, June 17th, O.S. I heartily beg your ladyship's pardon, but I really could not forbear laughing heartily at your letter, and the commissions you are pleased to honor me with. You desire me to buy you a Greek slave, who is to be mistress of a thousand good qualities. The Greeks are subjects and not slaves. Those who are to be bought in that manner are either such as are taken in war, or stolen by the Tartars from Russia, Circassia, or Georgia, and are such miserable, awkward, poor wretches, you would not think any of them worthy to be your housemaids. "'Tis true that many thousands were taken in the Moria, "'but they have been, most of them, "'redeemed by the charitable contributions of the Christians, "'or 
ransomed by their own relations at Venice. The fine slaves that wait upon the great ladies, or serve the pleasures of the great men, are all bought at the age of eight or nine years old, and educated with great care to accomplish them in singing, dancing, embroidery, etc. They are commonly Circassians, and their patron never sells them, except it is as a punishment for some very great fault. If ever they grow weary of them, they either present them to a friend or give them their freedom. Those that are exposed to sale at the markets are always either guilty of some crime or so entirely worthless that they are of no use at all. I am afraid you will doubt the truth of this account, which I own is very different from our common notions in England, but it is no less truth for all that. Your whole letter is full of mistakes from one end to the other. I see you have taken your ideas of Turkey from that worthy author Dumont, who has wrote with equal ignorance and confidence. Tis a particular pleasure to me here to read the voyages to the Levant, which are generally so far removed from truth and so full of absurdities I am very well diverted with them. They never fail giving you an account of the women whom, tis certain they never saw, and talking very wisely of the genius of the men into whose company they are never admitted, and very often describe mosques which they dare not even peep into. The Turks are very proud and will not converse with a stranger they are not assured is considerable in his own country. I speak of the men of distinction, for, as to the ordinary fellows, you may imagine what ideas their conversation can give of the general genius of the people." As to the balm of Mecca, I will certainly send you some, but it is not so easily got as you suppose it, and I cannot, in conscience, advise you to make use of it. I know not how it comes to have such universal applause. All the ladies of my acquaintance at London and Vienna have begged me to send pots of it to them. I have had a present of a small quantity, which, I'll assure you, is very valuable, of the best sort and with great joy applied it to my face, expecting some wonderful effect to my advantage. The next morning the change indeed was wonderful. My face was swelled to a very extraordinary size, and all over as red as my Lady H's. It remained in this lamentable state three days, during which you may be sure I passed my time very ill. I believed it would never be otherwise, and, to add to my mortification, Mr. Wortley reproached my indiscretion without ceasing. However, my face is since in status quo. Nay, I am told by the ladies here that it is much mended by the operation, which, I confess, I cannot perceive in my looking-glass. Indeed, if one were to form an opinion of this balm from their faces, one should think very well of it. They all make use of it and have the loveliest bloom in the world. For my part, I never intend to endure the pain of it again. Let my complexion take its natural course and decay in its own due time. I have very little esteem for medicines of this nature. But do as you please, madam. Only remember, before you use it, that your face will not be such as you will care to show in the drawing-room for some days after. Letter 13 Hera, March 10th, O.S. 1717. I have not written to you, dear sister, these many months, a great piece of self-denial, but I know not where to direct, or what part of the world you are in. 
i have received no letter from you since that short note of april last in which you tell me that you are on the point of leaving england and promise me a direction for the place you stay in but i have in vain expected it till now and now i only learn from the gazette that you are returned which induces me to venture this letter to your house at london i had rather ten of my letters should be lost than you imagine i don't write and i think it is hard fortune if one in ten don't reach you however i am resolved to keep the copies as testimonies of my inclination to give you to the utmost of my power all the diverting parts of my travels while you are exempt from all the fatigues and inconveniences in the first place then i wish you joy of your niece for i was brought to bed of a daughter five weeks ago i don't mention this as one of my diverting adventures though i must own that it is not half so mortifying here as in england there being as much difference as there is between a little cold in the head which sometimes happens here and the consumption cough so common in london nobody keeps their house a month for laying in and i am not so fond of any of our customs as to retain them when they are not necessary i returned my visits at three weeks end and about four days ago crossed the sea which divides this place from constantinople to make a new one where i had the good fortune to pick up many curiosities i went to see the sultana haifatan favorite of the late emperor mustafa who you know or perhaps you don't know was deposed by his brother the reigning sultan and died a few weeks after being poisoned as it was generally believed this lady was immediately after his death saluted with an absolute order to leave the seraglio and choose herself a husband among the great men at the port i suppose you may imagine her overjoyed at this proposal quite the contrary these women who are called and esteem themselves queen look upon this liberty as the greatest disgrace and affront that can happen to them she threw herself at the sultan's feet and begged him to poignard her rather than use his brother's widow with contempt she represented to him in agonies of sorrow that she was privileged from this misfortune by having brought five princes into the ottoman family but all the boys being dead and only one girl surviving this excuse was not received and she was compelled to make her choice she chose bekir effendi then secretary of state and above fourscore years old to convince the world that she firmly intended to keep the vow she had made of never suffering a second husband to approach her bed and since she must honor some subject so far as to be called his wife she would choose him as a mark of her gratitude since it was he that had presented her at the age of ten years to her last lord but she never permitted him to pay her one visit though it is now fifteen years she has been in his house where she passes her time in uninterrupted mourning with a constancy very little known in christendom especially in a widow of one and twenty for she is now but thirty-six she has no black eunuchs for her guard her husband being obliged to respect her as a queen and not to inquire at all into what is done in her apartment i was led into a large room with a sofa the whole length of it adorned with white marble pillars like a ruelle covered with pale blue figured velvet on a silver ground with cushions of the same where i was desired to repose until the sultana appeared 
who had contrived this manner of reception to avoid rising up at my entrance, though she made me an inclination of her head when I rose up to her. I was very glad to observe a lady that had been distinguished by the favor of an emperor, to whom beauties were every day, presented from all parts of the world. But she did not seem to me to have ever been half so beautiful as the fair Fatima I saw at Adrianople, though she had the remains of a fine face more decayed by sorrow than time. But her dress was something so surprisingly rich that I cannot forbear describing it to you. She wore a vest called Donna Lama, which differs from a kaftan by longer sleeves and folding over at the bottom. It was of purple cloth, straight to her shape and thick set on each side, down to her feet and round the sleeves, with pearls of the best water of the same size as their buttons commonly are. You must not suppose that I mean as large as those of my lord, but about the bigness of a pea, and to these buttons large loops of diamonds in the form of those gold loops so common on birthday coats. This habit was tied at the waist with two large tassels of smaller pearls, and round the arms embroidered with large diamonds. Her shift was fastened at the bottom with a great diamond, shaped like a lozenge. Her girdle as broad as the broadest English ribbon, entirely covered with diamonds. Round her neck she wore three chains which reached to her knees, one of large pearl, at the bottom of which hung a fine-colored emerald as big as a turkey egg, another consisting of two hundred emeralds closely joined together, of the most lively green, perfectly matched, every one as large as a half-crown piece, and as thick as three crown pieces, and another of small emeralds, perfectly round, but her earrings eclipsed all the rest. They were two diamonds, shaped exactly like pears, as large as a big hazelnut. Round her colpack she had four strings of pearl, the whitest and the most perfect in the world, at least enough to make four necklaces, every one as large as the Duchess of Marlborough's, and of the same shape fastened with two roses, consisting of a large ruby for the middle stone, and round them twenty drops of clean diamonds to each. Besides this, her headdress was covered with bodkins of emeralds and diamonds. She wore large diamond bracelets and had five rings on her fingers, except Mr. Pitt's, the largest I ever saw in my life. It is for jewelers to compute the value of these things, but according to the common estimation of jewels in our part of the world, her whole dress must be worth a hundred thousand pounds sterling. This I am sure of, that no European queen has half the quantity, and the empress's jewels, though very fine, would look very mean near hers. She gave me a dinner of fifty dishes of meat, which, after their fashion, were placed on the table but one at a time, and was extremely tedious, but the magnificence of her table answered very well to that of her dress. The knives were of gold, and the halves set with diamonds. But the piece of luxury which grieved my eyes was the tablecloth and napkins, which are all Tiffany, embroidered with silk and gold in the finest manner, in natural flowers. It was with the utmost regret that I made use of these costly napkins, which were as finely wrought as the finest handkerchiefs that ever came out of this country. You may be sure that they were entirely spoiled before dinner was over. 
the sherbet which is the liquor they drink at meals was served in china bowls but the covers and salvers massy gold after dinner water was brought in gold basins and towels of the same kind with the napkins which i very unwillingly wiped my hands upon and coffee was served in china with gold suku the sultana seemed in very good humor and talked to me with the utmost civility i did not omit this opportunity of learning all that i possibly could of the seraglio which is so entirely unknown among us she assured me that the story of the sultan's throwing a handkerchief is altogether fabulous and the manner upon that occasion no other than this he sends the Kaislar aga to signify to the lady the honor he intends her she is immediately complimented upon it by the others and led to the bath where she is perfumed and dressed in the most magnificent and becoming manner the emperor precedes his visit by a royal present and then comes into her apartment neither is there any such thing as her creeping in at the bed's foot she said that the first he made choice of was always afterward the first in rank and not the mother of the eldest son as other writers would make us believe sometimes the sultan diverts himself in the company of all his ladies who stand in a circle round him and she confessed they were ready to die with envy and jealousy of the happy she that he distinguished by any appearance of preference but this seemed to me neither better nor worse than the circles in most courts where the glance of the monarch is watched and every smile is waited for with impatience and envied by those who cannot obtain it she never mentioned the sultan without tears in her eyes yet she seemed very fond of the discourse my past happiness said she appears a dream to me yet i cannot forget that i was beloved by the greatest and most lovely of mankind i was chosen from all the rest to make all his campaigns with him and i would not survive him if i was not passionately fond of the princess my daughter yet all my tenderness for her was hardly enough to make me preserve my life when i left him i passed a whole twelve month without seeing the light time hath softened my despair yet i now pass some days every week in tears devoted to the memory of my sultan there was no affectation in these words it was easy to see she was in a deep melancholy though her good humor made her willing to divert me she asked me to walk in her garden and one of her slaves immediately brought her a peliche of rich brocade lined with sables i waited on her into the garden which had nothing in it remarkable but the fountains and from thence she showed me all her apartments in her bedchamber her toilet was displayed consisting of two looking-glasses the frames covered with pearls and her night telpoch set with bodkins of jewels and near it three vests of fine sables every one of which is at least worth a thousand dollars two hundred pounds english money i don't doubt but these rich habits were purposefully placed in sight though they seemed negligently thrown on the sofa when i took my leave of her i was complimented with perfumes as at the grand vizier's and presented with a very fine embroidered handkerchief her slaves were to the number of thirty besides ten little ones the oldest not above seven years old 
these were the most beautiful girls i ever saw all richly dressed and i observed that the sultana took a great deal of pleasure in these lovely children which is a vast expense for there is not a handsome girl of that age to be bought under a hundred pounds sterling they wore little garlands of flowers and their own hair braided which was all their headdress but their habits were all of gold stuffs these served her coffee kneeling brought water when she washed etc it is a great part of the work of the elder slaves to take care of these young girls to learn them to embroider and to serve them as carefully as if they were children of the family now do you imagine i have entertained you all this while with a relation that has at least received many embellishments from my hand this you will say is but too like the arabian tales these embroidered napkins and a drool as large as a turkey's egg you forget dear sister those very tales were written by the author of this country and excepting the enchantments are a real representation of the manners here we travellers are in very hard circumstances if we say nothing but what has to be said before us we are dull and we have observed nothing if we tell anything new we are laughed at as fabulous and romantic not allowing either for the difference of ranks which affords difference of company or more curiosity or the change of customs that happen every twenty years in every country but the truth is people judge of travellers exactly with the same candour good-nature and impartiality they judge of their neighbours upon all occasions for my part if i live to return among you i am so well acquainted with the morals of all my dear friends and acquaintances that i am resolved to tell them nothing at all to avoid the imputation which their charity would certainly incline them to of my telling too much but i depend upon your knowing me enough to believe whatever i seriously assert for truth though i give you leave to be surprised at an account so new to you but what would you say if i told you i had been in a harem where the winter apartment was wainscoted with inlaid work of mother-of-pearl ivory of different colors and olive wood exactly like the little boxes you have seen brought out of this country and in whose rooms designed for summer the walls are all crusted with japan china the roofs gilt and the floors spread with the finest persian carpets yet there is nothing more true such is the palace of my lovely friend the fair fatima whom i was acquainted with at adrianopole i went to visit her yesterday and if possible she appeared to me handsomer than before she met me at the door of her chamber and giving me her hand with the best grace in the world you christian ladies said she with a smile that made her as beautiful as an angel have the reputation of inconsistency and i did not expect whatever goodness you expressed for me at adrianopole that i should ever see you again but i am now convinced that i have really the happiness of pleasing you and if you knew how i speak of you among our ladies you would be assured that you do me justice in making me your friend she placed me in the corner of the sofa and i spent the afternoon in her conversation with the greatest pleasure in the world End of section 5